Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. It's great to have you here for another episode of the podcast. I wish I could bring you better news, but unfortunately, my North Carolina Tar Heels lost this weekend in the NCAA tournament. So there's been kind of a gloom over our house this weekend as we've kind of mourned the end of the season here. But in other news, we have a great podcast for you this week, and uh, I'm excited to bring you this interview with Doug Koppel. Doug, we're going to hear in the interview, uh, works with uh, Benson Koppel and Associates and is going to talk with us all about the nuts and bolts of buying and orthodontic practice. Some of the things that you kind of have to go through in that process from legal to due diligence to relationships. It's a great interview, and I know you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, I wanted to take a moment before we get into the interview today to thank a few people who really play a role in this podcast behind the scenes and uh, who I haven't introduced to you yet, but uh, I want to take a minute to acknowledge them and to thank them. The first are our two interns that we've had working on the podcast. Uh, we have Justin Sorensen from St. Louis University. He's a resident there. And Bridget Brooks, who's a resident at the Georgia School of Orthodontics. These two great orthodontists-to-be have been helping me with the podcast, doing some of the logistical work, helping me do some of the background research, giving me some ideas for interviews, and they've been really critical this year as I've been busy with lots of other things, uh, running an orthodontic practice uh, with three locations, family, et cetera, et cetera. You guys know how that goes. To be able to sustain the podcast and keep it going, I've needed a little bit more help this year. And Bridget and Justin have just been incredible, really lifesavers who have uh, gone above and beyond to help prep our guests, to help get things taken care of on the back end that you guys don't see, but that really plays a role in uh, the success of the podcast. So Bridget and Justin, uh, thank you. If you, if you run into these guys um, you know, out and about, say thank you as well, because uh, you know, we're all benefiting from their work. The other two people I want to thank are uh, Jen English, who is my marketing coordinator, uh, here for our orthotic practice, but is also kind of the business manager for the podcast. She helps with sponsorships. She helps with some of the scheduling, uh, website, some of the behind the scenes stuff that just kind of helps the podcast run and keep things flowing. And uh, Mason Washer, who is our audio genius, who makes us all sound good and uh, puts up with me submitting these files to him at the very last minute sometimes late at night and he's up in the middle of the night doing it because I've been slacking off on getting those over to him. So we're going to do a better job with those. But uh, to Jen and Mason, I also want to say thank you for helping uh, this podcast run. I, I couldn't do it without these four people because I just don't have the time to, to do all of the things that I was doing when the podcast launched. Um, I used to do all these things on my own, but uh, to keep it going has required a little bit of help. So anyway, We've got a great interview today. I'm excited to bring on Doug Koppel after a quick word from today's sponsor. The sponsor of this week's episode is Ray Delay. Do you or your doctors ever rush to check brackets before the cement sets up? Does your team play sloppy napkins over patients' mouths to buy time? Does your team sit with idle hands over patients' mouths to keep cement from curing? If you answered yes to any of those questions, then Ray Delay is for you. Ray Delay is a simple but effective solution to put your clinical team in control of your bonding appointments. Ray Delay is a durable silicone dental shield 
that makes it easy to place brackets while preventing light-cured adhesive from prematurely curing. We designed your ray delay to effectively block unwanted light while providing the sleek, professional design you deserve. Ray delay works with virtually every cheek retractor in existence. Ray delay reduces moisture through strategically placed vents. Ray delay eliminates patient compliance. Ray delay endures cold and heat sterilization. This includes dry heat and autoclaving. And ray delay is completely latex free. To purchase your ray delay or to learn more, please visit raydelay.com. That's R A Y D E L A Y.com. Doug Koppel graduated from Appalachian State University, where he earned his Bachelor of Science in Business Administration and Master of Science degree in Accounting. Prior to working with Benson Koppel and Associates, he was an audit senior for Ernst & Young and KPMG. Doug is a member of the National Association of Certified Valuation Analysts. He is integral in both the exclusive valuation methodology and tax allocation negotiations in the transition process. Doug ensures that clients are provided with reports of the highest quality that adhere strictly to industry standards. And his goal at Benson Koppel & Associates is to provide shorter negotiation cycles and stronger assurance of deals Reaching completion, Doug, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Lance, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Uh, You've done a great job with this podcast. I really enjoy listening to it. And uh, I I just uh, feel like Garth now. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I I really appreciate you being on, uh, having me on here. So thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. And we've got a great list of topics that we're talking about today. Uh, Also in the past, you know, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, uh, you and Chris helped me out when I bought my practice back in 2011. And uh, that was some of those experiences were going to, you know, maybe come up and some of the things that we, we went through during that. So, uh, you know, I, I definitely owe you guys a debt for helping me through a successful uh, practice transition up here in New Hampshire. No, it was a pleasure working with you back then. And uh, it's enjoying seeing how well you've done since you, you purchased the practice. So again, honor to be with you. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. So we're here, uh, this is March 20th, we're recording, and we just have our, you know, NCAA basketball tournament brackets have been released. And so I've got to ask a little bit, you know, what your bracket looks like, what your, you know, affiliations are and, and what you're pulling for. Well, you know, we've got an office pool here and uh, I'm supposed to log in tonight to do to do my brackets. And and I got an error saying I wasn't, I wasn't part of the pool. So I've, I've got to figure that out. But I will say I'm a, I'm a Carolina fan. I'm a Tar Heel fan. You know, the last loss to Duke was was painful just a few days ago. Yeah, uh, but with Zion being back, I don't know. It's going to be hard to to, uh, to pull against uh, the the Dukies yeah. and the Blue Devils, especially with Zion back. But um, I don't know. It'd be awesome if, if Carolina and Duke could uh, end up in the national finals together, and that's, that's a possibility. That would be quite the game. Yeah, I thought the ACC tournament game was an exciting game, and I was disappointed that Carolina lost, but. It's it's hard not to love watching Zion Williamson play as much as I am just, you know, I hate Duke with every passion and fiber of my being. But, man, that guy is exciting to watch. And, uh, you know, that would be I, I'm a little bit scared if they actually meet in the final four. I don't know if I, I don't know if my emotions can handle that. So. I know. I don't know if mine can either. And, you know, I used to be like you. I was I was diehard, hated Duke. I'd rather anybody win other than Duke. As I've had three kids now, and, and I hardly get to watch any any TV or, or have any downtime, my hatred of them has calmed down a little bit. I do really love Zion and the team to put together, and I, and I, I love Coach K. He's a, he's a great coach. So um, don't hate him as much as I used to. We'll 
see what happens, but then it'll be a tournament this year. Yeah, well, we, we can agree to disagree on that point and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and move on into our interview here. So I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. We've had a lot of guests on talking about starting practices uh, from scratch, uh, which I think is awesome and a really exciting avenue for people. Uh, but there certainly are other options. And I really wanted to highlight in this uh, interview uh, the concept of, of buying an orthodontic practice and get into some of uh, the nitty gritty, the details that go into that process. So someone who's maybe considering that as an option kind of has a little bit of a sense of, you know, what the steps are, what the important milestones are as we go through that process. So, you know, I'll start, I guess, with this. When when someone's out there, maybe they're, they're you know, looking for a practice. And, and I guess I'm, I'm not as interested in, you know, how to identify a practice, like what resources are out there. But let's say someone has found a practice or found a person or, or they're looking for a practice that meets certain characteristics. You know, what advice would you give them in terms of what to look for in an orthodontic practice? I'd start with first is finding the right person uh, to, to do the deal with. And that's from a buyer and a seller perspective. And so when we're talking about, you know, buying practices, you're right. We don't work with startups or rarely work with startups. We only deal with uh, buying and selling practices and existing practices and partnership deals. And the first thing, again, is, is finding the right person. It's about the people involved in the deal just as much as it is about the terms of the deal. And so you can identify the location you want to be in, whether it's because this is where your family's from, this is the city you like to be in, whatever it may be. But you want to find the right person because um, in these transactions, it's all a relationship deal, right? Orthodontists are built solely on the relationships and the reputation they have within their community. And so what you're buying in these deals is the seller's reputation, the seller's goodwill and the relationships they have. And so you want to find the right person from the buyer and the seller's perspective. And so if you're a buyer, you know, we, th- we think about the good qualities and bad qualities of, of both sides. And if you're a buyer, you want to come to this deal optimistic, Right. We hear a lot of times from sellers when we're negotiating the deals, hey, all, all they're doing is pointing out my bad things. You know, they're pulling out all the bad things in my practice. And so if you're looking to buy a practice, be positive about it. Remember that this is the seller's life work. You know, they have put their blood, sweat, and tears and money into this thing the last 20 to 30 years, and this is their baby. And so think about what you're bringing to the table, how you're going to continue the, the great reputation of the practice. Talk about those things. I'm not saying lie down and get rolled over and, and don't negotiate the deal. But obviously you want to make sure you're, you're being positive about it. You're picking up the seller and you're not focused completely on all the financial aspects and exactly what you're going to get out of the deal and how you can save a buck here and a buck there. Uh, in, in those cases, you really think about it. If you can negotiate the purchase price down by $25,000 in, in a decent sized practice, I'm not saying that's, that's not a lot of money, but at the end of the day, it's what, $300 in your loan repayment. Is that worth the, relationship that you may be harming by all the negotiations you're going through. So I would say, you know, look for a, a good practice, a good person to buy from. And, and also if, if the seller is being unreasonable, there's no reason to try to continue sometimes that, that purchase transaction, because if the relationship's not there, the transition and the transfer of the goodwill and relationships may not go well anyway. So sometimes it's better when we have, when we have a seller that's unreasonable, we're representing a buyer. And the purchase price is way high or they're asking something that's you know just unreasonable, maybe the work back arrangement or something like that. A lot of times we tell ourselves, listen, the first thing you need to ask them is, is this negotiable? Is this really what you want to do? Because if this is non-negotiable, there's probably no reason in us trying to get to the negotiating table and, and offend you. Let's just move on to something else to find something uh, better. So 
that's that's one thing to look for. I would say uh, from the seller's perspective, you know, what are the good qualities of a seller? Well, we'd like to say, you know, have a long memory. What we mean by that is that remember what it felt like when you were <laughs> starting your career. You know, um, yeah, you've been at this a long time now. Uh, you're probably pretty well financially off. Uh, you know what, what's happening in the practice. You've seen it all. You're not worried about a lot of stuff. You probably have very little debt, uh, surely no, uh, no uh, student debt. And these guys are coming out not knowing all the business aspects for the practice. They have a lot of debt. Uh, I think sometimes millennials can get a bad rap just because the debt levels they have now are much, much different than they were a generation or two ago. I mean, the average student debt is over $375,000 worth of honest. Yep. And we see it regularly over half a million dollars. That's a big, big nut for them. And to think about they're getting ready to borrow another several hundred thousand dollars or maybe seven figures, that's scary for them. Yeah. So, again, remember you're transferring relationships and uh, goodwill of the practice. And so help them through this process. You want to make them successful so they have um, a great practice, too, that you can brag about once they buy it. A lot of times the uh, my way or the highway or non-negotiable, nothing's negotiable at all. Those a lot of times don't work. Right. Understand where the buyer's coming from. You know, the buyer's going to ask questions. The buyer wants to, um, uh, they're going to ask for a lot of data. Uh, they're going to need information to make the decision. Okay. So be ready to provide that to them. Uh, we have sometimes sellers say, well, I'm not going to get that. I don't, you know, they're asking me too many questions. Well, you'll probably hear me say this a lot during this, uh, during this podcast, but they're getting ready to write you a check for a lot of money. Okay, <laughs> they <laughs> yeah. understand what they're what they're getting involved with. I mean, just think about the steps we go through when we're buying a car or a house, and all the questions we have, the inspections that we have, make sure everything's right. This is not just a widget somebody's buying. Right. This is their future career, their reputation, their uh, everything that's going to support their family. So it's it's more than just an asset you're buying. It's a it's a lifestyle and everything else. Yeah. You know, I think with the comments you're making about, you know, goodwill are just so tremendously important. And I think somehow that gets lost in the transaction, which I always find a little bit ironic, because if I recall from when I purchased my practice, by far the largest kind of item in that purchase of what I was buying was literally goodwill. I mean, that was like the legal term for what I was buying. And, you know, I, I worked really hard to have a good relationship with my selling doctor. And I th- think he was a reasonable person. He ended up being a great mentor. Uh, but I can think of several occasions where we disagreed, uh, not, not on anything, you know, tremendous, uh, where I felt kind of a little bit frustrated by maybe some of the specifics of that outcome. But before the deal went through, and certainly after the deal went through, I was very aware of the fact that I had paid a tremendous amount of money for this goodwill. And out of my own self-interest, I thought, boy, I, I have to be a little bit careful with, you know, I, I've bought this asset, this goodwill. What am I going to do that would increase the value of that? And and potentially there are things I could do that would really you know, eliminate that. You know, I, you can write a big check for a lot of goodwill. Uh, you can have a falling out with your selling doctor. And a lot of that goodwill can be lost. You can lose hundreds of thousands of dollars of goodwill, you know, by by getting into some, you know, argument. So, you know, that all has to be weighed out. And I, I think you're right that, that the relationship aspect of it ultimately becomes the most important. You're right, Lance. I mean, a lot of times the goodwill piece is over 80% of the purchase price. And if you're not having a good transfer, all you're buying are the old, you know, the chairs and the x-ray machines in the office, which are a fraction of the purchase price. And you're right too, that the buyer has more to lose than the seller. And so that's why I said, don't lie over, just roll over and, and, and let it be steamrolled. But at the same time, you want to make sure that seller is your advocate. 
So you may have to let some things go. And I'd say that from the seller's perspective too, say, let some things go, go out gracefully. You know, you're, you've done well. A lot of times they don't even need all the money or, or much of the money from the, from the sale. So, Hey, make this a good transfer make somebody successful and somebody you can talk and have a great relationship going forward. Yeah. And, and conversely, you know, I think the buyers, cause I, I can remember it. It hasn't been that long. You know, you are in such a different situation. And, and you mentioned, I think the student loans are only kind of a part of it. You know, I think most buyers aren't used to, you know, the numbers that get thrown around in orthodontic practices and orthodontic practice transitions. Uh, it all seems very overwhelming. It's, it's hard to, to let something go that, that costs 10 or $20,000 perhaps. Sometimes I think, there is some perspective that a younger doctor doesn't have, and this sounds perhaps condescending to, to younger doctors, and I don't intend it that way. But certainly as you move along further in your practice, uh, the value of certain elements of things uh, change a little bit. And your perspective on you know, some of the dollar figures involves, as you mentioned, starts to change once you're you know, five or 10 years and 20, 40 years into practice, whatever it is. But that's, I think, a very hard thing when you've been doing the, the beans and weenies kind of student alone. You know, there's this kind of scrappiness, right, of, of, a, of a new uh, you know, graduate that um, sometimes works a little bit against their interest in preserving the relationship. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the nuts and bolts of this. You know, if, if you've got a practice that you've, that you're looking at the selling doctor and you, you know, you've, you've been out to lunch or you've maybe even spent some time in the practice. It, it seems like there's some promise there. How do you kind of evaluate, you know, whether this is, is a good practice, whether, you know, the numbers work and, and, and that it's, you know, it's all good. You know, you can't totally just go on a handshake here. So how, how do we get into some of the details? What are we looking for? Maybe first just talk about some of the average practice values that we see, right? So those are rules of thumb that uh, we don't like to base everything on averages, but that's what people want to understand is um, because that's always the first question they ask us. We, we get calls all the time is, hey, I'm looking at this practice. Here's some high-level numbers. This is what they're asking. Is this reasonable? And we say, well, it depends. Let's, we need to get into a deeper dive and, uh, and then sort of get into the nuts and bolts of it. But, um, but uh, when we talk about average practice values, the, the one that most everybody hears is – values to percentage of collections. And I'm sure you, you know what that average is, or at least know the ballpark, but it's around 75 to 80% of collections, just under 80% of collections. So if you have a, you know, a million dollar practice, for example, it's probably going to sell or average sell for about $750,000, $800,000, right? So that's the most common one that you hear about. But remember, that's an average. You know, if you stack a hundred up, the average may spit out that, you know, right around 80% of collections. But the, the ranges are very, very wide. We see practices sell for as low as 45% of collections. Some sell as high as 100% of collections or more. And so the one, what we really look at is profitability. And again, we're, what we're talking about here, if you're buying and selling of an orthodontic practice is you're buying a business, okay? I know it's a, it's a personal business for a lot of doctors and it's a personal transaction for the buying doctor, but you're buying a business. And when you're buying business, what you're buying is the future profits of that business, whether it's an orthodontic practice or a technology company or anything else. And so if you don't buy that, the profits are you're buying, you know, the assets. And that's where the, the intangible piece, the goodwill comes in. And so the average, when you think about percentage of profit, is what we look at a lot. The average is around 180% of, of last year's profit. Okay. And again, that's a that's an average. It ranges anywhere from you know, less than 150% of profit to over 200% profit on the higher ends. Um, so what I mean by that, sort of putting some numbers here, if we have, say we have a million-dollar practice or two, two practices that are gross, grossing a million dollars in collections, 
if everything else is equal, you know, they have the same type of facility, same number of chairs, same age of equipment, everything else. But for some reason, one of those practices has net income or profit to the owner doctor of $450,000, which means it has a 55% overhead rate. So that's $450,000 in profit there. But then the other practice is throwing off $300,000 in profit to the owner doctor, which means it has 70% overhead. Those are two completely different values, right? Sure. That buyer is not going to pay $800,000 for both of those or either of those. Okay. Either he's going to buy the one that's more profitable or he'll buy the one that's less profitable for a much lower price. And so just keep that in mind because a lot of people don't think about that. And a lot of our sellers don't think about that. It's, 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 we get that a lot. It's, well, God, you know, you value my practice at 65% of collections. Why is that? Well, it's because your profitability is much lower than normal. And there's other things we can talk about here in a second, but uh, that affect value. But profit is really one of the biggest things that affects the value of the practice. Be aware of that. Uh, just because you're paying 90% of collections doesn't mean you have a bad deal. And just because you're buying a practice for 65% of collections doesn't mean it's a great deal. Okay, there's a lot of other factors that are involved. Now, the other thing, I don't know if you want to get in this or not, Lance, you let me know, but uh, the, the DSOs are, are, are talking a lot more about EBITDA multiples. Um, and <laughs> yeah. so that, that's that's affecting some of the valuations that are out there, and it's a different language than what uh, doctor-to-doctor deals have always had. And so when we talk about you know, 180% of profit or 80% of collections, DSO groups are saying, hey, they sell, practice sell for anywhere from three to seven times EBITDA, okay? So EBITDA is, is different. It's, it's uh, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. So it's basically cash flow before taxes and debt service and, and tax adjustments. And so the thing to remember with that, because we've had doctors that have asked us this question, if you think back to that same two practices we were talking about, with $450,000 in net profit or $300,000 in net profit, DSOs cannot do the clinical work themselves. And so when if they buy a practice, they have to hire an orthodontist, whether it's the same selling orthodontist, which is usually what they want. They want the selling doctor stay on for some period of time, or they have to go hire somebody else to replace that selling orthodontist. They have to hire somebody and pay that compensation. So if we talk about those same practices, uh, let's say of $450,000 in profit, well, let's just assume, for example, they pay the selling doctor $200,000 a year and they ask that doctor to stay on for the next you know, three years or so. Well, the EBITDA number that they're looking at is that four fifty dollars minus the $200,000 in doctor compensation and benefits that they're paying. So the EBITDA in that case is $250,000. Okay. And so if you have a you know, multiple of four or five times EBITDA, you're looking at a practice value of a million or 1.25 million on that million dollar practice. And so the consolidation has affected that, and we're, we're sort of having a little bit of two markets now where there's some higher higher values with uh, DSOs. There's a lot of other things to consider with that. Right. Um, but but just just keep that in mind, and, and, and there's a lot of other things to consider as far as how long the, uh, the DSO wants the selling doctor to stay, and if they want to require that they stay three to five years, that's a, that's a lot less income that they were making compared to an owner. Right. Uh, but also – that's affecting values because there are some sellers out there now that are saying, hey, I can go sell a corporate group for a lot more money. Or I've heard my buddies bought out for a billion dollars, right? And so how can I do that? There's a lot of catches of those and things you got to be aware of. But it is affecting buyers in that it's making it a little bit harder for buyers to negotiate you know, on, on little things like that. It's like, hey, I've got some other opportunities out here. So just be aware of that too. Do you find that... When, when you're kind of getting into these numbers and you're starting to evaluate this, you're a, a doctor and you're 
just graduated, you're looking at a practice. How do you how do you start to kind of uncover these sorts of things? Do you will will doctors allow you to come visit their practice? Um, You know, do you get financial statements? What what's the information kind of gathering that due diligence process? Well, if you're if you're a buyer, obviously you want to ask a lot of information. You ask for a lot of information, and typically now I would say in, in most transactions sellers are having some type of analysis or evaluation or something done on their practice uh, before preventing, presenting something to a buyer. And so when we represent a buyer, a lot of times there's already been a book done on the practice. And so we don't revalue anything. We're asking for all this data. And so you want to get, you know, the last three years of tax returns and profit and loss statements. Uh, you can get all the operational reports as far as case starts and receivable balances and number of active patients and breakdown of, you know, where referrals are coming from and things like that. Uh, there is confidentiality that uh, the sellers want to be aware of. So they're not going to give you everything at the front. They're usually cautious about you coming and visiting the practice from the beginning. But once you get serious, yeah, there's a lot of data that you want to understand that you're looking at. And so um, when you think about, let's say, some other things that affect practice value is, you know, your contract receivable balance. Is that higher or lower than normal? Sure. What's the condition of the equipment and the facility? What's the location of the practice? Is it in? Well, one is, is what state it's in or what side of the country. You know, the certain certain states have higher values just because they're in high demand uh, versus maybe you know, the middle of the country or flyover states or things like that. Or even uh, when you go visit the practice, you know, you look on their website and say, I mean, this looks pretty nice. And then you go and realize, hey, it's on the wrong side of town. You know, it's uh, <laughs> so location is not just the part of the country it's in or the state. It's also is this practice on the side of town that's still growing or is on the town side of town that was great 15 years ago? Maybe this is what I need anymore. When you look at, let's just say condition of the equipment. Okay. That's one thing you want to get a handle on. You're going to look at that. You want to do some site visits. It may be that uh, the person who did the valuation did some site visits to give you some input on that. As you're talking through the valuation with them, they may be representing the seller, but you're going to have some conversation with them. Remember again, we're buying a business. We're, we're buying future cash flow and future profits. And so when you go look at that facility of that practice and you identify, well, hey, they're not electronic charting. They're still paper charting. Um, I'm going to have to replace this 15-year-old machine uh, or all the chairs and like that. Those investments that you will make as a buyer in the future are going to affect your future cash flows. And therefore, it's, it's either considered additional purchase price or additional investments that you have to make. So that has a big impact on the value too. So you want to look at those things. Uh, now, we tell buyers all the time, Hey, don't, don't give me your wish list. You know, when you're telling me, Hey, I got to make some upgrades. Okay. If you want a CBCT machine and two scanners and a new practice management system, you know, because no disrespect to anybody, but somebody said, Hey, I don't want tops. I want, you know, I want ortho track, for example, well, that means you got to replace all the computers and get a new practice management system. I understand you may want that. We can't factor that into the price. You know, we have another buyer doesn't need those things. And so, sure. but you do want to identify those things to understand how much more do I have to invest in the practice when uh, or after I buy it, because that's going to affect your cash flows. Do you have to borrow more money? Maybe the banks aren't going to give you so much amount of money. Does that mean that you have to wait to make these investments? Does that mean you can borrow some more money? Does that mean you're not going to have cash for the, for, for the first year because you have to invest more and more money out of the profits? Yeah. Be aware of that. So there's a lot of reports that people ask for. Yeah. I remember when I hired you as you know, as a, as a buyer's agent. And I, I kind of had a pretty good feel for the practice. And, and, and we had some numbers that were provided to us. But I remember my main feeling, and maybe, the, you know, this is common, was just kind of, I just wanted to make sure that, like, that this 
wasn't like some disaster, right? I mean, like I, I was, I guess perhaps less interested in, in every little detail of it, but I just wanted someone to look at this with me and say like, yeah, this is a reasonable deal. Like this makes sense. You know, and and I think that's a kind of a common feeling among your clients. It is. And uh, without trying to sound too self-serving here, because this is what we do, we we do advise, you know, buyers, you need to to spend some money and make an investment to make sure you understand what you're looking at. Because when we're talking about, when I'm thinking about buyers in this, in this podcast, I'm thinking about younger doctors, whether they're coming right at residency or they've worked a year or two or three somewhere. Now they're going to buy a practice for the first time. So most likely they never bought a business, they never bought a practice, they never operated a practice. And so they don't even know what questions to ask. Okay. Right. And so you're right. So we can look at a few metrics and at least give you a ballpark. It's, you know, this is, this is worth pursuing or it's not. Yeah. And so, and, and, and not to get off topic here, but this is one of the reasons that we rarely ever do dual representation in a transaction. Uh, we might do it in very limited circumstances, if it's a family deal or, or a buyer and seller knew, have known each other for a long time and there's just, you know, they sort of already worked out timing and everything else. And they just need a few numbers and a, and a few things to make sure everything's good. But, um, but you know, if you think about, uh, we mainly represent sellers in these transactions. We do the valuation, we gather all the data. We feel like we do a good job. We feel like we present all the data, make sure we understand what we're talking about and can present that to the buyer. But if we have, if we're representing the seller and we've done the valuation, and at the end of the day, too, remember, the seller is the one that controls their practice. They're the ones that are deciding, here's the sell terms that I'm going to do. Here's how long I want to work back. This is why I'm going to sell it. I would only sell it under these terms. Now, I'm not saying they direct all that, but to a certain degree, they're going to present the sell proposal that they want that makes sense for them, at least on the front end, right? And sure. so from a buyer's perspective, you don't know what questions to ask. And if we've represented the seller... And you ask me a question, well, obviously, yeah, I think it's fair, right? I mean, I did the valuation. I think my number's right. You know, I look at this, I think you're going to do pretty well. And so you want an advocate on your side as the buyer right? Uh, to make sure those questions are asked on your behalf, even if, even if the questions are shot down or they're not agreed to, or you make requests that you say, listen, I'm not going to do that because X, Y, and Z, but at least they have been asked on your behalf. They've been challenged, you know, uh, and, and that way, at least you feel good about, you got the answers that you, that somebody your advocate is asking for. You may not even know, again, what question to ask. And so you do want to ask other things to make sure it's a good deal, right? And so when you look at these things, are you comfortable with the major aspects of the practice? One, can you get all the data that you're, that you're wanting from the practice? When we think about, you know, we, we tell sellers, hey, you need to at least get, get your practice ready to sell, okay? And so the buyer's going to ask a lot of questions. You need to provide them the information that they want so they can write you a big check. Because if you don't give it to them, they're not going to write you a big check. And so can you get the information out of your practice management system? First of all, do you have a practice management system that you can get the data out of? But um, I'm surprised every once in a while when, when we have a client that, you know, we ask them, well, how many starts do you have last year? Uh, or how many active patients do you have? What is your contract receivable balance? And they come back and say, I don't really know, you know, or, <laughs> or God, my, I've got $250,000 in past due AR on my, on my accounts receivable report. Well, why is that? Well, that's just an accumulation of the last 15 years of patients that I haven't written <laughs> off. And, you know, so my, I'm a million dollar practice and my AR report is, you know, 70 pages and has like 2000 patients on it. And, you know, say, well, you know, you need to get that information ready. You need to clean that up because, right. you know, you're selling your practice. Think about if you're selling your house. You want to get it presentable, right? You want to clean it up. You want to fix the things that are obvious. And so if you, and, and then when they start going through the process, the seller goes, well, 
God, this is taking a lot more time than I thought. You know, this is hard to do. Maybe I don't want to do this. And I say, well, just realize if you, if you want to do that, what you're telling the buyer is my dad is not right. It's really hard to clean up and I don't want to deal with it. So you can deal with it. And yeah. which may be okay, but the buyer's probably not going to pay you top dollar for your practice, right? Sure. From a seller's perspective, get all, get all your information ready. Have a presenter. Make sure, you know, is your profitability right? You know, we hear a lot of times, hey, I know I've got two people. You know, I'm overstaffed by two people because that's how I operate my practice. It's driving up overhead, but that's how I operate my practice. The buyer can, can terminate two people after they buy the practice. Well, the buyer's not going to want to terminate two people as soon as they buy the practice, right? They're buying the practice where it is today. And so get your house in order. Don't assume that that they're going to buy your practice like it's an average practice at an average price. They're not buying an average practice. They're buying your specific practice. Okay. So just from, from the seller's perspective, get that stuff in order so you can present it to them. You can do it with a push of a button rather than having to manually calculate something every time they ask you a question. Yeah. And then from the buyer's perspective, that's all the data you're going to be asking for. You know, you want to make sure like just simple metrics that we look at, you know, when, when, a, when a seller tells us, yeah, I mean, my fees are $4,500 a case on average or 5000 a case, whatever it may be. And then if we look at it and say, okay, here's the total production for the year divided by total starts for the year where your, your average case fees coming in at $2,800. Why is that? You know, is something wrong here? Is the data not right? So just little simple metrics like that, that you want to have somebody look over those things um, from, from your perspective, because you're right. A lot of times we look at practice and say, man, this is great. As long as, as long as this is the area you want to be in, and we, we tell buyers that sometimes too, if this is the area you want to be in and the seller's being good to you, you're going to be fine here. You know, who cares yeah. if you ever pay by 30 grand? Okay. I'm not telling you should, but at the end of the day, if you found a great opportunity that the seller's treating you well and everything else is working out right, that's not a big deal. Let's, let's make this happen somehow. Right. Sure. But you're right. You want to I'm sort of, I guess I got off topic there a little bit less, but um, the things they want to look at is the profitability in the right range. You know, is their contract receivable balance in the right range? Um, that's a big deal for buyers. Um, that contract balance, which is your unbilled uh, patient balance that you will build in the future, gives a good indication to the buyer, do you have a lot of paid and full patients or prepaid patients in your practice? Yeah. And so the buyer is always asking the question, well, how many patients am I going to take over that I have to treat for free, right? Because you as the seller has already been prepaid. So the contract balance that we typically see uh, usually around 50 to 55% of annual production is in your unbilled balance, which means if you're a million dollar practice, your, um, your unbilled AR should be between 500,000 and 550,000, right? So once they start getting out of those ranges, you want to make sure you got to either account for it in the purchase price or handle it, or at least be aware of it. The seller sometimes can argue that, but the point is the seller has been prepaid for those services without providing the services. So they've taken some equity out of their practice. So that's a question that's always a big one. If it gets too low, you want to account for that. I think I remember hearing, um, was it Judson Car- uh, Crawford on your podcast from Cane Waters? Yep. And he was saying, you know, I think their, their contract balances have, have been increasing recently. And he said, if you're selling your practice, I think that's true. Maybe you don't want to do that because you don't get full credit for a really high account receivable balance. And that's true. If you have a really high AR balance or unbilled balance, um, you know, this, the buying doctor doesn't really give you any credit for that. Most valuators don't give you any credit for that. But if you have a really low one, 
they had they question concerns <laughs> about that. So that's something that I wonder if that's going to change a little bit because I think we're entering this time of very flexible financing, and I think that the average contract balance is going up in practices. Uh, so I'm wondering if at some point that will start showing up in valuations. Let me ask you another question here about kind of the legal aspects of things. You know, there's, uh, you know, at some point, obviously attorneys get involved. And if, if I remember kind of going through it, there was almost like three layers. You know, there was kind of this uh, non-disclosure where it kind of allowed me to get more information on the practice, which I signed. And then at one point, I remember we negotiated kind of a like a term sheet or a outline of the deal uh, where we, we kind of in broad strokes talked about what, you know, what we wanted to do. And, and I think both parties signed that. And uh, and that made it really helpful when we finally got to the closing where we had uh, just countless pages of uh, of, of documents uh, that were being signed to kind of give a framework for that. So is, is that a fairly typical pr- process as you, as you move through it? And, you know, what do people kind of where, where are the pitfalls when people start, you know, lawyers start getting involved. People sometimes get a little bit nervous. <laughs> I agree with you. And um, and you're right. There's usually a process. We have sort of a standard out process that we go through. You know, first is making sure you found the right practice, the right the right parties in the deal. Then you're doing the valuation where it puts a stake in the ground so you can understand all the all the information on the practice. You can create some financial models if you want to to make sure you can afford it and everything. Then you get to the negotiation stage and then you get to a term sheet or a letter of intent. Yeah, letter of intent. That was yeah, the letter of intent. And so that's the uh, that's where we're really negotiating all the main points. And we want to we want to have that outlined. You're right. Before the attorneys get involved. Now we have an attorney we've been referring clients to for nearly 15 years. We think he does a great job, but you know, side, you know attorneys can get sideways and negotiate things that, uh, that uh, don't need to be negotiated or that have already been negotiated. So we try to get everybody on the same page with that letter of intent with all the major main stuff, which is purchase price, purchase price allocation, how it's going to be paid, you know, how to deal with some of these things like liabilities or refunds or announcement letters and all these other things, uh, work back arrangements, uh, uh, possibly even lease arrangements with the building and things like that. And that way it's all outlined. Everybody's on the same page. And then we can hand that package to the attorneys. And then the attorneys can draft the documents. Like you said, it, it can be a really big package, uh, even with just a straight asset sale. And if there's employment agreements before, after, and non-competes and everything else, there's an asset purchase agreement, there's bills of sale, there's these other things. And so it can be, you know, 50 to 70 page document. If you're looking at a partnership deal, uh, which are much more complicated, those can be 125 pages. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there. So we want to outline all that stuff and we're not attorneys. You know, I can't give you advice on that, but you know, we know the process pretty well, just a, just a couple legal documents that people mentioned, which is when you mentioned the, uh, uh, the NDA agreement, the non-disclosure agreement. I think that was really important just for people to understand that is a document that um, sellers will ask interested buyers or potential candidates to sign. And it's basically stating that all the information on the practice is confidential. You're not to disclose any of the financial information to anybody else other than your, your advisors or close family members. And you're not supposed to talk to people in the community about this practice may be selling. And so that non-disclosure agreement is a very important document. We don't give any information on the practice to interested parties until they sign a non-disclosure agreement. So they understand this is all confidential. And believe me, the, the, the sellers take that very seriously. Oh yeah. And, uh, they do not, they do not like people talking about it or before it gets out. The first person they, they, they blame is the, uh, the get the candidate that they're talking to. And then the, uh, the other document that is, is always really important 
is uh, the non uh, the non competition non solicitation agreement. And I'm always surprised because I, I just assume everybody knows they're going to sign that. Just like if you're an associate orthodontist, you're going to join a practice as an employee, as an employee orthodontist, you're probably going to be expected to sign a, a non-competition agreement. And except in the few states that don't allow, I think California and Alabama don't allow non-competes for, uh, for employees. But, but that document is saying that you're here as an employee, you're getting paid a lot of money. And you're learning a lot about the practice. You're getting to know the patients, the parents, the referral sources, all my marketing programs. And so if you were to leave the practice for whatever reason, you're not going to compete against my practice within a certain geographic area and within a certain time frame. So you can't go work for somebody else. You can't start your own practice in that, in that uh, geographic area. So how that relates to selling an orthodontic practice is getting back again to what is being transferred in this deal. Uh, it's mainly goodwill. It's the relationships and everything else. And so the selling doctor is always going to have to sign a, non, uh, a non-competition, non-solicitation agreement, which states that the seller is not, or the, yeah, the seller is not going to compete with the buyer within a certain geographic area, within a certain time frame. They're not going to solicit the patients. They're not going to solicit the employees or anything like that. Because remember, you know, the buyer just paid you a really big check, right? And so if, if you're not going to promise not to compete against them and not steal their patient and their future profits, the only thing they're buying are the assets. And so they're not going to pay you a whole lot for that. And so in any case, the seller's going to sign a non-compete. The non-competes for a seller are usually much more stringent than a non-compete for an associate orthodontist. And much more enforceable. Yes, exactly. And so, yeah, the, the courts, of course, really don't like non-competes, especially with medical professionals. And so if you're an employee, your non-compete may be for 12 or 18 months and you know, five, seven, 10 miles maybe. So if that associate had been working in the practice and then buys the practice after, say, working there for a year, well, that seller's non-compete, they just got a check for $800,000, $900,000, a lot of money, right? And so their non-compete may be for five years and 20 miles, uh, or at least you got to look to see where all the patients are are coming from and try to capture an area that uh, captures at least 70, 80% of the patients or so. And so those non-competes are very important. Uh, this, and from a buyer's point of view, they get really, really uncomfortable and really nervous when the seller starts challenging something and say, well, are you, <laughs> well why are you selling your practice? If you still want to, still want to work, still practice with the why are you selling? Exactly. You know, so most of, I would say most of our selling clients, they say, Hey, I don't care. You know, you can put 15 years and 40 miles in there if you don't want to. But when the seller starts questioning it and start really challenging, want to reduce that, everybody gets nervous and uh, yeah. for good reason. So just be aware of your seller. You're going to sign that document. Be ready for it. The other thing I would say about the, the legal aspect of things is that, you know, if you're a doctor involved in a transaction like this, I think you do have to be a, kind of firm at times, perhaps with with your you know legal representation. Um, like you say, sometimes I feel like people that they they're perhaps doing this out of a perception that this is in your best interest. But sometimes this can really work against you. We've talked a lot about goodwill and about this relationship. And if you are working with someone who you feel like is is creating a lot of problems, or I recall from my transaction, I think that the selling doctor's broker was, uh, they, they had a, a rep that they had. I don't, I'm not exactly sure what the terms were, but the, whoever the person was involved was a little bit hard to deal with. And I felt like there was some friction between that. And there were times where, you know, I would bypass and I would go straight to the, to the selling doctor and just say, I'm getting this. I, I, this doesn't sound right. Is this really what you want? And, and sometimes it was, and sometimes it wasn't, 
but maybe, you know, not always having to go through the lawyers every single time, telling the lawyers, you know, I want this to work or this is important to me. You know, if, if you want to, you know, really go in guns blazing, it's probably not the deal for you. So, you know, I think sometimes that gets lost in the mix. And I think ultimately you have to make sure that your, you know, advisors and representatives are really representing what, what you want and what your best interests are. I completely agree with you there, Lance. And, and like you said, that's why we try to negotiate everything up to the letter of intent, everybody's on the same page. And because you don't want to have the attorneys in trying to renegotiate everything yeah. is when everything gets sideways. And sometimes they don't realize, you know, everybody involved in this deal, the buyer and the seller, and maybe their advisors, whether it's the financial advisors like us, we may have been negotiating this deal for the last six months and trying to get everybody on the same page and get everything right. And then, then you have an attorney that comes in on the back end or, or any advisor that comes in on the back end. And then they suddenly want to change everything that destroys the relationship. So we tell our, our buyers and, and the attorneys and everybody involved, listen, you got to direct them on, on what you want them to accomplish. And they can put all types of crazy stuff in the, in, a, in the legal documents that means nothing you know, at the end of the day. And so control them. And I tell them the same thing with us. Listen, our goal in these deals is to make a transaction work for both parties that they're happy and they're successful. Okay. And if I'm telling you something, that you don't agree with, let me know, you know, Hey, if you sell your practice for a lot less, right. Or I don't like this buyer, but you do, you want to make it work. Let's make it work. You know, don't let anybody stand in the way of your transaction, including me or anybody else you're on your advisor team, because this is the deal ultimately between you and the doctor, whether it's, you know, the selling doctor, the buying doctors, it's a deal between you two and you want to make sure you're comfortable with it. Now we try to make sure we try to avoid you guys negotiating things. Right. Uh, because that, that can get uncomfortable and can get contentious. However, we've had times before, because we've worked with some advisors on the other side when we're representing a buyer, for example, that we know that advisor that's advising the seller is very hard to deal with. They don't communicate with the seller. And we tell them, listen, buyer, we can ask this. I can send them two or three emails. I have conversations with them. It may be a week before they talk to them or they may tell them, they may not even tell them what, I've, what we've asked for. They may just say, you just don't need to change the terms. And so your best bet is to go have a direct conversation with the, with the selling doctor and say, listen, my advisor is telling me this. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but can we sit down and talk about it? So at least, you know, because again, we want to avoid the contention and direct negotiation, but sometimes that's the best way to do it. Yeah. Sitting down and talking a lot of times is so much better than emails and legal documents going back and forth. You know, the tone and the, the attitude that you come with, that can make a big, big difference in getting, getting the deals done a lot of times. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with that completely. Let me uh, ask you another question here. You know, when we do these deals, and I know that this is how you present information to, you know, your clients, you know, there are these kind of financial projections. I think they're given mainly to the to the buying doctor where it kind of tells, you know, here's what the practice is grossing and here's the overhead and here's your debt payments and here's what you can expect for kind of take home pay and and and, and do the numbers kind of work. And I guess my question for you, I've always been curious about this, is how accurate are these things? I mean, you know, do, do you find that uh, when people buy practices, you know, does the practice decline somewhat and, and maybe those those numbers don't work out or, you know, or, or does it increase? I mean, wh- you know, what how rough are those numbers or, or how much can we bank on that when we're kind of, you know, projecting out, you know, five years, let's say, uh, after the sale of the practice? That's, that's a good question, Lance, uh, because the, it's hard to paint everything with a broad brush. And we see we see all outcomes. And uh, you're right. We do. And every deal we do, 
we try to do a financial projection and they're even more important in partnership deals. So you can understand what's going on because partnership deals can be very convoluted to, you know, based on profit allocations of when you're buying what and everything else. But when we have say hundred percent buyout, which means that the buyer's going to come in, buy the practice completely, and there's going to be a short transition period and the seller goes away. We have, you know, we've talked to buyers after the fact that said, you know, hey, I was, I struggled a little bit the first 12 months. I was down, you know, 10%, 15%, but, you know, I'm, I'm turning back. I'm doing well this year. We've had some people that are up 20% after they bought the practice. And, and so much of it depends on the doctor's personality and how the relationship with the selling doctor went and how outgoing the new buyer is and how much they're involved in the community and what they're doing, you know, digital marketing and, and, and everything else. So I would say I, I don't have an, I don't have a great answer for you other than that. We see all different things. We saw one person that had doubled their practice within 18 months after buying the practice. And so I would say that most of them uh, are, are still, as long as the practice is a decent size, are still doing pretty well. And then going back to the cash flows with the partnership deal, I would say our partnership deal projections that we do, and we do those, we rely on those a lot uh, as far as one, just explaining the transaction to the two doctors because partnership deals can get really complicated. Uh, I would say uh, just to jump on partnerships a little bit, I try to tell the, the junior partner or the junior doctor coming in is that, you're not going to get rich the first few years of this deal. Okay. One, you're going to be an associate for at least 12 to 24 months because you have to make sure everybody likes each other and they can do this. And then we want to go forward with the buy-in. A lot of times the reason the selling doctors bring in a junior partner is because they are growing the practice and they want to continue to grow the practice. And so the practice may have to grow some before the partner, you know, the junior partner gets to buy in. They may get to buy, you know, 25% now and then 25% later or after a few years. But it's usually not that you buy in or you come in and after a very short period of time, you're buying 50% of the practice where, you know, you're 50-50 with that incumbent doctor. Okay. And so we rely on these cash flows to explain what this looks like from both parties' point of view. Okay. And in these partnership deals, the seller is giving up a lot. They're usually taking a pay cut because they're bringing in a partner and then they're, they're giving up some of their income. Because again, what I've said multiple times during this, when you buy a business, you're buying the future profits. And when you think back when I was talking about those valuations on the high end, a doctor, to doctor valuation, a practice may value for a 200% of annual profit. Okay. So if you're the selling doctor or the, or the senior, senior partner in this deal, if you think about, I'm going to sell, is it worth it to me to sell half of my practice, which means I'm giving up basically half of my profits for a valuation of one, one year's worth of income to make half as much as I've always made. And so if that makes sense, so, you know, it's valued at 200% of my profit. I'm going to sell half of it, which means I could get a cash payout. If I get a cash payout, usually it's seller finance. I'm going to get a cash payout of hundred of one times one year's worth of income. And then next year I'm going to make half of what I'm, what I've always made. Okay. So <laughs> until the practice doubles or until the practice grows and grows, the senior doctor's taking a pay cut on their cash flow. Okay. And so we want to explain this to both parties to make sure they understand each party's perspective. The buyer, we're trying to show them as you buy in, yeah, you're not going to be rich. You're not going to make a killing, but you're going to incrementally get more and more and more from the, from the seller's point of view. Are you comfortable giving up this amount of income? Because almost always it shows that the seller's making less, even if, if they're getting repaid some of the purchase price over some number of years. And so these projections are very, very important in partnership deals. And I will tell you from our partnership deal projections, 
usually we understate them because we want to show very nominal growth. We want to be very conservative in the projections. And so usually both parties come back to us and say, man, we, we really blew your projections out of the water. <laughs> so that always makes me feel good because I feel like partnerships, like I said, the buyer's not going to get rich immediately. Uh, the seller's going to take a little bit of a pay cut, but they're much less risky. Okay. Cause if you, if you're a buyer, and you're a young partner, young doctor, and you're coming in, you're going to be a junior partner and then eventually become 50-50. What are the chances of something drastically happening in that practice, you know, that it suddenly declines or that a huge referral source goes away or something happens that it, it declines in profitability? The senior doctor's still there. They've shown that they can operate the practice. They're probably growing. So usually those go well and they continue to grow versus if you buy a practice and there's a very short transition period and the seller is gone after say six months, there's a lot more risk in that, right? I mean, there's a chance something goes bad. There's a chance that the patients don't like the new partner, that the, the new owner. There's a chance the general community doesn't embrace them. It's a chance that maybe you know, they're not outgoing enough and, and they just don't do well. So that's why I say it's a long winded answer to say that the projections are very important to look at and make sure you understand. But also the reason that they're all over the place is it really depends on the transfer, it depends on the buyer and what they're willing to put in the practice after they buy it. Doug, we are we are flying through the time here. This has been a, a great interview. We'll have to bring you back another time to talk a little bit more about uh, DSOs and how that's affecting the orthotic landscape. But let me give you a chance just to, to kind of wrap up with you know, any kind of closing thoughts on uh, you know, buying a practice or buying into a practice, selling your practice, any, any kind of final words of wisdom. You know, I, I just think... Um, it's obvious that a lot of people here in the market's changing. There's a lot of things going on in the orthodontic world. And we hear that too. You know, there's more consolidation, more DSOs, more competition with uh, general dentists doing you know, more aligner treatment, ortho and, and uh, pediatric dentists and everything like that. There's, you know, the directors to consumer orthodontic companies that are out there now. And so we get asked a lot, should I still purchase a practice? Is this uh, still a great industry to go into? And, and, and we say yes. I mean, we still think that the overall market's growing. Uh, we hear a lot about consolidation and DSOs and things like that. But still, the, the, the ortho space is maybe 12 to 15% consolidated, depending on who you talk to. And, you know, we hear that the dental space overall, which is mainly GPs, is, is 15 to 20, maybe 22% consolidated. And so the vast majority of practices are still private practices. Now, there's a lot of younger doctors, too, that now, or I say younger to middle-aged doctors, that their goal is to create sort of this private DSO where they have three, four, five locations and maybe have some other partners or, or associates. So there's opportunity there to get involved with those practices and create these partnership deals uh, that you can have a bigger footprint and uh, some flexibility in your practice. But, you know, it looks like the market's expanding from – what the uh, the DSOs are offering, what the direct-to-consumer orthodontic practices or companies are doing. I mean, they're spending a boatload of money, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year on advertising. You see them all over the place, right? And so that's one thing that we think that allows more and more people to see that you can get orthodontic treatment. Now, the challenge for the private orthodontist is making sure they're the choice of that consumer to get them into their practice, right? Right. It's still a great profession. It's just a matter of things are changing. You're going to have to, if you want to own a practice, you know, those are questions you have to ask yourself is, do I have that personality to go out and be in the market and be involved in social media and everything else I need to do? And there's many, many different ways to be successful in these practices. Uh, we've seen, we see many different models. Um, 
just had a meeting recently that one person does everything digitally. They do all types of advertising on Facebook and, and Google and everything else. The other doctor said, I don't do that stuff. I don't like it. And this is a young doctor. He says, I, I don't do it. I don't, I'm just not comfortable with it. But, but you know, you listen to him talk. He's involved in every school function. <laughs> he's, he's at every charity <laughs> thing. You know, he's just great to people. And so there's different ways to be successful, but you have to be aware that it is changing. And, and go out there and do it. And so when we look at, you know, still from a financial projection point of view, one, buying a practice, uh, whenever you do it, and um, as long as you don't, it doesn't tank, you know, but uh, it, once you buy a practice, especially your first several years after buying a practice for that cash flow that's already there, you do really, really well after buying it versus starting your own practice. That can be difficult. You know, that can take you a while to get to profitability or make any, any money on that. So buying a practice is much more financially rewarding compared to starting your own practice, unless you're starting a practice on the side and, you know, or you're working somewhere else to keep your cash flow. And then also, you know, comparing that to working somewhere as a, you know, for a DSO, even though you can make pretty good money, the equity that you can build and the cash flow that you can get, and even the tax advantages and other things that you can do through owning your own practice, this is still a great, great profession. And owning your own practice is can, can make you very wealthy and make you do very well. And so, you know, the, the good thing is you know, when you start thinking about the positive, what, what can you learn from all these things, you know? And, um, you know, you look at the director of concerned orthodontic practices, you can figure out how to market better, right? And get more and more patients in your door and how they're expanding the market. Maybe you want to think about offering limited treatment that they offer, you know, because some people just all they think of is, oh, braces are going to cost me $5,500 and it's a, I'm going to be in braces for you know, 24 months versus big purple or, you know, is, is really talking about limited <laughs> treatment and lower fees. Is that something that orthodontists can offer in the future? If that's something you want to do, I'm not saying it is, but those are all the options that you have now. And so, and then you have these choices now, as far as if you're a young doctor and you can't find a practice to buy, Hey, there's probably a, a, a corporate group or a DSO out there that's going to pay you pretty good money to work there for a year or two or three and so you can pay down some debt, save up some money, be ready to buy your practice after you identify that, that great opportunity. Yeah. And, uh, and even from a seller's perspective, you know, their option has always been, I'm going to wind my practice down or I'm going to find a young doctor to buy it uh, or maybe do a, a succession plan with other doctors with a partnership deal. You know, as much as uh, it, you know, a lot of people don't like it, the DSOs are giving them different transition models, maybe sell their practice and, and work back a few years as they slowly age out or, or retire. So there's a lot of different options out there now. The market's expanding. I think it's still a great, a great profession for uh, for the young doctors. Yeah, I you know I believe that orthodontics is best um, when doctors are owners, and that's a big part of our podcast here is trying to promote practice ownership. Uh, I think that's better for patients. I think that's better for doctors. I'm I'm a firm believer in that, and uh, I agree with everything you said. That I think that there's some challenges, there's some pitfalls. Um, but you know, ultimately, you know, practice ownership can be really rewarding. Uh, I think we've talked about a lot of great things in this episode about relationships and how important that is. You know, I'm reminded a little bit of the Warren Buffett quote where, you know, when he started out, he was, he was a value investor, uh, kind of looking for, for deals and, you know, a little bit in, in conjunction with his partner, uh, Charlie Munger, they started buying, you know, maybe some more higher quality companies. And, and he said, you know, I used to buy fair businesses at wonderful prices, and now we buy wonderful businesses at fair prices. And I would, you know, I think that's kind of the advice I would give to someone who's involved in this. Twenty-five dollars or $50,000, you know, to a new doctor sounds like a lot, but perhaps it's not in the long run of, of your career. Find a great opportunity, find a great doctor, you know, build that relationship 
And then once you buy that practice, prepare to, to work, work really hard. I mean, I, I'm still working hard, but I can remember the first couple of years in particular where, where uh, a lot of hours and a lot of energy, but it's very exciting and, and very rewarding. And uh, Doug, I appreciate the effort that uh, you, know, you guys put into helping doctors through that transition and uh, into successful practice models. Well, thank you, Lance. I appreciate it. And I agree with everything you just said there too. I think it's a, it's a great opportunity and find the right, when you find the right opportunity, you're going to do very, very well. So. Doug, if people want to follow up with you, if they're interested in, uh, you know, asking you a follow-up question or uh, learning more about Benson Koppel, how, what's the best way to reach you? The best way is probably just our website, which is BensonKoppel.com. Uh, my email address is Doug at BensonKoppel.com. That's my, my business partners, uh, Chris Benson and Shannon Patterson. Email addresses are the same, Shannon at, at Benson, uh, BensonKoppel.com and then Chris at BensonKoppel.com. Or give us a call at 800-621-4664. All right. Well, thanks again, Doug, and uh, go Tar Heels. <laughs> thanks, Lance. Go Tar Heels. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 